You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 7 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. If you guys remember back to two months ago, we did a show that I said was part one of four of sort of the, the life cycle of a photograph. So preparing to take a photograph, taking a photograph, processing your photograph, and then sharing your photograph. So we did preparation last time. So this time, it's time to do part two of that, which is actually taking the photograph. And joining me, I have a smaller number, but very high-end skill panel, which is basically, I have the whole of Switch to Manual with me. So hi, Antonio. Hi, Tom. Hey, Bart. Hey, Bart. Hey, no, it's good to have you guys back. Um, we have, have you we, switched the manual yet? <laughs> well, actually, this is actually a really good episode to have the two of you on. Uh-huh. Because the actual taking the photo bit, that's kind of what your workshops are very largely about, right? Uh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we, yeah, we deal a little bit with the um, the equipment, but it's really about, like, taking that picture and, and, you know, putting the camera in the manual position and, um, having, yeah. So obviously people don't have to put it into manual, but in your workshops, that's what the whole point of it. So we won't be talking entirely about manual today, but I have a feeling it'll come up. Yeah. You know, in, in our, in our class, we do, you know, one of the, one of the things we do talk about is like, you know, Hey, it's okay to, you know, we we're talking about switching the manual, but it's great to shoot an automatic, and I, you know, I like to say I shoot an automatic all the time because there are times when I need it. But and there's nothing wrong with shooting in shooting an automatic. Um, and it's also a spectrum because th- there's a lot of space between full auto and full manual, and I spend most of my time somewhere on that spectrum. Hmm. Yeah, Tom, yeah. where do you spend the spectrum? I'm I'm mostly always on manual, although you know I, I was I was driving through the, our Brooklyn neighborhood yesterday, and I. There was a guy on a bicycle drinking coffee, and he had two dogs behind him in a little cart. And I reached behind me, grabbed my camera, put it on auto, and took a picture while I drove by him just because I didn't have time to set it up, you know, driving. And you couldn't really, you know, drive by him, stop him and say, hello, would you mind cycling back down the street? (laughs) Yeah, right. I just wanted to, you know, instantly, it's like almost like just grabbing your cell phone or something, you know. And, and can I add the caveat, like we'd have another screen? Professionals only. Do not try this at home. <laughs> don't, don't recommend driving. <laughs> I've been in the car with Tom, though. He's a, he drives with his knees. <laughs> yeah. But I don't recommend this. Do not do this at home. We don't recommend you, you know, taking, you know, pull the car over and take the shot. You well, know. if you're driving in New York, you may be, not be moving. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just sort of sitting there, but yeah. yeah. But we don't recommend taking pictures while driving, unless you have like a dash-mounted camera or something, and you're not actually doing anything, which can be. Or if, you're, or if you're in the passenger seat. Or at the passenger yeah. seat, you can have as much fun as you like in the passenger seat. Yeah, I do that all the time. My yeah. wife's driving, and uh, I'll be taking pictures of the bridge, which I'm not supposed to take pictures of. There's big signs that say, "Don't take pictures of the bridge." Huh? In, in yeah, New York, we have we have some ter- rules. Terrorism some the, concerns. Yeah, terrorism concerns on the. Big bridges like the George Washington and the Verrazano Bridge, and there's signs that say, you know, no photography allowed. So I make it a point that every time I drive over, I take a picture of the bridge, just to 
Give it to the man. No sense. Oh, yeah, let's not get started on that route. Because it just makes no sense. It's really where that, that comes to in my head. No. Um, no. To kick off the discussion, I sort of, I, I did a few, like I said, we don't really do show notes in this show because I want it to be like a fluid conversation. But as a starting point, I just made a little note to myself that probably the single most important thing for getting a good photograph is to be shooting from a solid base. Which doesn't mean a tripod. But it does mean that you should be standing in a comfortable position. You should probably be holding the camera in a comfortable way and so that you're not shaking and moving and jittering all over the place. Uh, you know, I agree with that. And in our class, you know, we have all different um, experience levels that come in. Um, and the novices who come in with the DSLRs, I'm, su- I'm surprised. But, you know, I notice how they hold the cameras. And often you'll see somebody holding, uh, you know, when you're holding a DSLR, Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I hold it is to support the lens underneath and grab the handle with my right hand and support the lens with my left and then sort of tighten in my body, you know, and sort of to create a, you know, tripod out of flesh, you know, my triangle being a rigid shape, I guess. Yeah. And and the three points of contact being my elbows against my body and the camera against my face. And that's creating a three point contact. So it's the most stable I can be. But I'm I'm. Sort of noticing people who buy these cameras for the first time, they tend to hold it in the right hand the way they're supposed to, but they grab the lens from the top with their left hand. And so there's no support underneath. Uh, or, or they hold the two sides. Or they hold just, yeah, the two sides. That's uh-huh. awesome. Yeah. 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 And if, if you think about it, that lens is sticking out. Therefore, you may be able to sort of hold it, but you're going to be a bit shaky. You're going to be a lot less stable than if you hold your hand. You know, cradle the lens, I believe is how, I don't know who describes it as cradling the lens, but that's how I was always taught. Cradle the lens and hold it with the, the right hand and fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Although, you know, I, I use a wide angle a lot and oftentimes I'll be like holding the camera down near the ground and, and trying to get different kinds of angles. But I've I've learned the hard way that even in that kind of situation, I will try to get settled and hold the camera still as I possibly can when I'm taking the image. So it's kind of the same principle, even if you're trying to get creative and hold the camera in different places. Yeah, you have to be comfortable with it. I think that's probably the most important takeaway. Um, and, of course, the, the wider the lens, the more you can get away with because mm-hmm. – you know, a real a real world movement of one millimeter trans- translates into far fewer pixels, and of mm-hmm. course the opposite is true. That if you start to zoom in, you got to be more and more and more and more solid. Yeah, yeah Tom, I never absolutely. see you holding. I never see you holding your camera with your eighty to two hundred with one hand, you know, towards the sidewalk. Yeah, that's true. I never see that. But I always see you take your your wide angle lens, and you're like one handed, you know, dropping it down to the sidewalk and taking pictures. So. Yeah, you get some really cool shots that way. But yeah, it's but the wide angle helps make that possible. Yeah. The other thing I was going to mention, I mean, it's sort of a practical part of it, but like when you have the longer lenses on, like Tom and I both have like a – you have an 80 to 200, Tom, or 70 to 200? 70 to 200. 70 to 200, and my Nikon is an 80 to 200, and it's a big lens. Hmm. And I would never want to hold the camera, you know, from the side – uh, you know, both sides when that lens is on because it's going to put a lot of extra stress on the mount of the where the lens is attached to the camera body. So supporting the lens underneath helps relieve some of the pressure, even though they're they're pretty well built, these cameras. But, you know, yeah, the, I, oh, the lever, though, is working against you. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, this idea of having this huge thing 
hanging on by the mount of the camera. And sometimes the cameras are, you know, like the mount is good, but the camera body is plastic. <laughs> so yeah. oh, mount will stay on. Camera might. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea of like supporting, you know, creating your own tripod is is not only for the stability of the camera, but, you know, in some ways it's, it, it's you know, going to be better for the camera body itself. Yeah. And the lenses are designed that way. I mean, that, you know, the 70 to 200, and it's probably the case with your telephoto, Tony, there's, you know, if you're, the, there's dials that right at your fingertips on the lens itself to, you know, like mine has that sort of a mode that you can be in kind of a stationary subject or a moving subject right. and, you know, autofocus or manual focus. And sometimes you want to, you know, depending on what's happening in the moment, be switching those things. And if you're holding either side of the camera, it's not only hard to hold the camera setting, but you know you're really far away from those additional controls that you have. Yeah. Also, if you want to, on a lot of the cameras, um, you can take a quick uh, manual control over the focus too. So even though you're you're usually locking focus with the trigger with your right hand, uh, with your right right index finger, you can override that sometimes with by holding the lens and grabbing the focus ring and twisting it. So your hand is right there mm-hmm. in case you need to sort of override what the automatic settings are. So it's back to manual. Switch to manual. And the lens makers have made, uh, they're literally making it obvious to you where they think your hand should be. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. The tricky thing is like, you know, Nikon spins in one direction for focus and zoom and Canon spins the other direction. Mm-hmm. I, I wish they would all just made up their mind to go in one direction because it really makes it difficult for me to switch if I'm going to someone else's camera uh, my my memory, my camera memory in my hand is to go in one direction. So I'm always zooming or focusing in the wrong direction um, when That's I go to someone. Weird. It is. It is so very weird. If you get a lens from Sigma, it's going to be the same no matter what back end the Sigma people stick on it. So how does that work? And what do you mean? How does well, the... like if you get a third party lens for like Sigma make nice lenses and they sell yeah. the same lens with a Canon back end, a Nikon back end, or a Sony back end. So does that mean that if you're a Canon user, sometimes or your lens goes the other way if it's a third-party manufacturer? I suppose you just got to get used to it. I mean that I never thought about it because I don't really have any third-party lenses, so I didn't. I guess you you're want either Nikon or Canon because I don't know which way the Sigma lenses go. I don't know which way the Tokina lenses. Well, I have works. a mix of Sigma and Nikkor, and I've never noticed them being different. So I'm guessing they go the same way, or else I'm just silly. One of the two. I, That's gonna, probably gonna, they must go the same way. Yeah. Canon, Canon goes by its own rules, I think. You know, they have TV, <laughs> they have TV and AV rather than S and you know yeah, A okay, for, yeah. the, for their modes and stuff like that. So they're so they're just, playing. It's not just my Nikon prejudiced view that says the Canon is a bit odd sometimes. <laughs> Canon's being <laughs> in a, in our workshop. I'm the Nikon guy, and Tom is the uh, Canon guy. Ooh, yeah, I was going to say, come on, guys, he's up on the Canon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's two to one, Tom. It's two to um, one. <laughs> Before we get off this getting stable idea, I just want to throw one more thing in there, there which is don't be afraid to get dirty. Now, I can imagine yeah. in the New York City pavement, you can't lie down flat. But when you're out in the middle of nature, you can. And I will regularly Absolutely, come home yeah. quite dirty because there'll be a teeny tiny little flower and I want to get right down to it. And I'll just I'll just lie flat in the muck. I don't care. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I've, I have been known to lie down in the city. I mean, sometimes that's where you got to be to get the shot. I've gotten very yeah. funny looks from people, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time, and I do it in the city, too. I mean, it's it's a different kind of dirty in the city. 
Yeah, but even even kneeling, you know, oftentimes uh, it just gives you so much stability. And depending on what it is, and if you're wanting to get in close, I mean, and it's one step short of you know fully lying down. And you know, sometimes you don't want to be that low. Um, but yeah, it it makes a big difference. One of the nice things about the new camera I have is that it has a pivotable screen. I was about to say, yeah. So when I want to do that ridiculously low down wide angle shot, I will hunker down and hold the camera sort of between my knees and down to the ground there. So everything Uh is sort of symmetric. Yeah. I I find I can get stable that way and and get nice. Those cameras with the, I mean, I, I wish the, a lot of the more pro models would have the pivotable screens because I, I find them very useful, especially if you're doing overhead shots, you know, like reaching over a crowd of people. Yeah. Um, you know, I can frame better, but right now with the ca- most of the camera, most of the cameras I have don't have the screens that pivot. So I'm sort of like hoping it's just like the old days with film. You sort of reach up and like, geez, I hope I get the shot. But yeah. with the mid range to lower range cameras, so many of them have these pivotable screens and you can get these great angles and you don't really have to guess like, Part I'm thinking you can get some great macro shots, you know, right down into the soil, yeah. you know, and you're not guessing whether or not the frame is working out. I, I was doing it just this morning. I was in um, an abandoned graveyard and I wanted to get, there was a tower and I wanted to get a shot, you know, right down from the base of a tombstone looking up at the tower. Wait, 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 the, pause for a second. Mm. An abandoned graveyard? Well, I mean, did they like, dig everybody historic, up? Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> Sorry. It's like, well, no, they the, dig everybody the dead up. Dead people haven't left. Um, <laughs> the dead people are still there. <laughs> Just not kept up. Yeah, yeah it's basically, it's, a, it's, it's the ruins of a church and a tower with oh. some very, very, very old tombstones. And oh. nothing new, nothing modern. So obviously no one has, has used it to bury people in a very long time. Mm. Um, of course, they make the nicest tombstones for photographs, the very, very falling over sort of ones. Yeah. I agree. We have, we, have, we have an old graveyard near here. It's, it is... Um, Tom, is it the oldest in the oldest one in Greenwood it's Cemetery? One of the oldest, yeah, it's yeah, historic. It's one, yeah, historic goes back thing. to Civil War era, and it's still being used and it's upkept well. But uh, you but know, those old tombstones. Of, yeah. yeah, it's got yeah. some really ancient ones where you know you just can't even read the engravings anymore. Yeah. So you were using the pivotal screen, yeah, pivoting exactly. screen, so de- you know, yeah. down between your knees, pivoting yeah. screen, camera touching the grass. There's a big plus for that. I mean, I, like I said, I wish I had cameras that had that. You pay a price, though, because once you put it into live view mode, your uh-huh. focusing ability goes right downhill. Because that live view focusing is nowhere near as good as using the actual focus points in your camera. Mm, interesting. Mm, it depends on the camera, I think. I'm sure it does. But I, speaking for my camera, I noticed that it's it's fine as long as the light is good. But if you try that trick at dusk... I will get way mm. better focus using the real focus points than using the live view. Mm. It's a Nikon, right? It is a Nikon, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but the new, some of the new Sony's, um, they use what's called focus peaking. Have you seen those? Um, we use it in the video cameras at my job, uh, my day job. Um, you don't really need to actually see the image getting into focus. It, it's creating sort of a high contrast, almost like a high pass oh, filter. Yes, look. Yeah, I've seen friends of mine have have Sony cameras and have shown me that. Yeah, it looks- and yeah, and I think it's based on you know it's obviously Sony's video technology. But um, I can I can focus a camera without my glasses on. Um, once I see <laughs> the image, no, it's really it's cool. It's, no, I mean, that's so useful. Yeah, it is. It's and and some of these newer cameras are coming out. I think the. Um, 
I think the new some of the new Fujis have focus peaking as well. I mean, so and yeah. it's peaking it just makes it, it it creates a high contrast line around the subjects. And once you see the line sharpen or it comes into phase or something like that, I, I don't know exactly the what the so term it's a is. Mathematical definition of what is sharp. I think exactly, exactly. So. Yeah, you could be like a few inches away. You don't even have to look at your screen that close up. You can see the peaking from a distance. Um, but anyway, not all cameras have that. Nikon certainly doesn't have that. And I think my... Uh, my my two-year-old Nikon certainly doesn't. No, no. But I, I think we're going to be seeing more of that in the future. More of that kind of... The new the new Fuji camera has peaking and it also has a, an enlarged... Uh, you know, there's the, the X-T1 has an mm-hmm. electronic viewfinder. And I think with electronic viewfinders, they need that kind of... Um, help to, yeah. to be able to focus. So, oh, I think that's actually a really good segue because once you've managed to not wobble while holding the camera, the next thing you need to do to get a sharp photo is actually focus properly. And you can't fix that in post. No. Don't anybody, anybody says, yeah, I could fix it in Photoshop. Um, hang on, here comes an ambulance. Remember, we're in New York here. I was going to say, as long as it doesn't stop, it's okay. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. they do. <laughs> Yeah, um, focus is critical. And, and you just you have no leeway on that in post, right? Because right, right. Which can be so under, frustrating. Yeah, a little underexposed, a little overexposed. We can tweak that in post. Yeah. Well, you know, we could get into a philosophical uh, discussion, which is probably for another episode, about focus and sharpness and what, you know, what it means. I mean, I've seen pictures that work and there wasn't a lot that was in focus. It was blurry or something was moving. Um, but I know what you're talking about. Like you want this picture of the flower or this insect and, and for some reason you focus behind it or in front of it. And yes, you can't fix that yeah, if, for the moment. You're taking a picture of your dog and you're focused on the tip of his nose instead of his eyes. Yeah. Dog, yeah. But that could be a nice shot. It might be, but you probably were aiming for the eyes. Right. I'm saying whatever <laughs> your intent is. Again, yeah. this is, this is all like... You've said this before, Bart, in previous shows. Like, there's nothing, you know, there's no right and wrong. It's, like, what your intent is. Yeah, well, I I think it's certainly important to keep in mind that, you know, not to just immediately discard an image, you know, simply because it's not in crisp focus. Because, you know, like you're saying, Antonio, sometimes, you know, even if just a portion of it is in focus and it's, like, Bart, it's kind of what you're saying, too. I mean, like, if the eyes had been in focus and everything else of your dog was a little blurry, that could be really cool and interesting. And so, yeah, you know, there's certainly a lot of room for creativity, but there's also something to be said for getting the picture in focus and the frustration of not doing that sometimes when you say, oh, this could have been such a great shot, and I blew it. But it, there's also it's also relative though, right? Because if you zoom into 100 percent and it's not fully sharp, that may not actually be a problem yeah. at all. Because if yeah, you think back to last week when we were doing, we're talking about doing the pan shots. Yeah, right, the, right. The chances of you getting tack sharp focus in a panning shot are not uh-huh. actually zero, but they're pretty bloody close. But you yeah. really won't notice the fact that nothing is tack sharp because there's such a high contrast between the completely, totally, and utterly out of focus bits and uh-huh. pretty darn sharp, if not tack sharp bits. Yeah. And again, it's the, the, the context of the picture, you know, it's like something's moving fast and maybe you don't really expect to see it, you know, in focus or, you know, um, but I would argue there is a bit like when you do those panning shots, there are parts are in focus. There's just because you're sort of in a, in a, you're, you're, you're curving like a semicircle. 
to the pixel people, right? Yeah, but we don't talk to those people. You may we find don't... that none of it's actually technically yeah. perfect, perfect. We don't talk to the pixel peepers. We're we're done with this. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's where I was hoping. <laughs> no, really. I, yeah. I mean, there is that there is that segment of population who's going to look at a picture and say, you know, um, is it tack sharp? Is it not? And they've been doing this for years. It's not mm-hmm. just with digital. It's been with with every camera that's come out and you know print process. And it's like, if you're going to look at it that way, you're missing. I hate to say this. And no pun. Well, yes, pun intended. You're missing the big picture. Yeah. You know, you're you're missing the intent of what the photographer is doing. Now, there's intent and there's mistakes. I mean, you might have been trying to focus on the dog's eyes and you got the nose, and maybe it's still a good picture, but maybe you didn't want that, or maybe it's you know you wanted the dog's eyes and and it's and it's not a good picture based on that. Um, I, I think it's it, it's all relative, you know. But that's going like that's bringing in the philosophy part. Well, you know, this show isn't afraid of the philosophy part. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and no, there can be move, moving moving targets too. You know, I mean, and like because I do a lot of street photography and running around and trying to get different angles. I mean, sometimes I will just put that wide angle on autofocus and kind of try to get more or less everything. You know, and then other times if. If the focal length is more important, then I, I might just arbitrarily focus on something that's about the right length and then go back to just not even looking through the camera. And then it's not until after the fact when I you know, have a moment to look at the images that I'll see, well, what did I end up getting here? You know, And uh, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. I'm a you little know, distrustful of autofocus myself. Uh, yeah. I, I do rely on it. I agree. There's, um, I've purchased some of those extra books for my Nikon's, like you know, understanding your Nikon D seven thousand, and then the authors have written chapters about figuring out the autofocus on those cameras and like how they're reading contrast and what direction the sensors are, you know, the little focus points are are capturing mm-hmm. focus, and it's like my mind goes insane because I just want to take a picture and I want to try to figure out why the camera's focusing on things. I, uh, I, I what? you know, my. Uh, my camera, like most modern cameras, has a million and one focus modes. And you know what I just right. do? Single huh. point autofocus. Yeah, I like that single point. Single point's great. Too. Yeah, I mean, I think every camera does single point really well. It's the continuous focus ones that you have to read up about. Um, but since I'm from the old days, um, <laughs> uh, I'll admit, um, you know, older manual cameras used to have what was called a depth of field scale on them. Do you know this? You know this part, yes? Yes, no? yeah, numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would be able to then the, – the numbers were um, – the depth of field scale were the numbers were your f-stops. And they, they um, went um, on either side of the focus point on the lens um, where, where the focus dial would tell you where the image is in focus. And the numbers were, would progress larger as they went out. So we would create a depth of field scale. So for instance, if you had your – camera set on f16 the scale would be very large and it would show you that you could get something from infinity to 10 feet in focus uh and there was something called the hyper this, you can still do this though but it's a little harder with the lenses these days because they don't have the scale on it but you can do what's called hyperfocal there's a hyperfocal distance where you can set your f-stop at a certain f-stop and then rotate your focus dial so that there's a huge range of what's called acceptable focus so your lens might be focused at 10 feet but you're because you're set at f16, your mm-hmm. um, 
your focus on the far side could go as far as infinity and then down to three feet. So you'd have an effective range of focus from infinity to three feet. And then this is what photojournalists used to do. They would set this and then, you know, Tom and I say, set it and forget it. And they would take pictures, you know, um, and they wouldn't have to worry about focusing because they're running around all the time putting the camera above their heads and whatnot. And, you know, on the farther end of that scale, it wouldn't be as sharp, but... Um, it, you know, depth of field is really about acceptable focus, um, acceptable sharpness, actually. Mm-hmm. So you can still do that. You, it's a little harder with the lenses these days because you have to figure out what the depth of field scale well, is. You see, well, you, you can buy a little app. I have a little app from my iPhone that does the the hyperfocal calculation. And mm-hmm. one of the things I look for when buying a lens is does it have a distance scale? And so I now have mm-hmm. the luxury of having all of my lenses have a distance scale, so I can just dial in that mm-hmm. hyperfocal that the app has calculated, and away I go. Yeah, there's Smart. less and less Smart. of those lenses coming out now, I think. Um, maybe on the pro end, there, there are more of them. But <clears throat> like, well, My Sigma, like I, I've switched entirely to Sigma lenses, and they all have it, whereas none yeah. of the Nikon oh, that's great. ones did. That's great. That's great news. Um, I think it's, you know, the new Fuji cameras, again, I'm sort of a, even though I'm a Nikon guy, I think I'm like really getting in love with these new Fuji X-series cameras. They're coming back to bringing all the dials and stuff onto the top of the camera. And I believe their lenses also have the um, – um, I know they have the focus thing, so you can see that. But I'm pretty sure because they have the aperture ring on the lens itself. So no. they might be bringing back those um, – I'd have to look and see the lenses. Um, but I think they're bringing back those depth of field skills. But you know, it's amazing because all those instructions, all those things that we used to have on the cameras in the manual days have now gone into menus and they're hidden. And I really think it's good to bring them back to the outside of the camera um, so that you can see these things like the focus and uh, yeah. you know, ISO and, and whatnot. Now, I guess probably the biggest advice is if you're not sure why your autofocus isn't doing what you want it to do, read the manual of your camera because you, you can usually tell it something like I want to focus on whatever is physically nearest to me, which could be awful trouble if you want the dog's eyes. But its nose is always going to be nearer to you than the eyes. And so if you have a, your camera configured to always focus on the thing closest to you, you will never have uh-huh. the photograph you want. Good point, yeah. And then, you know, we might want to mention, I forget the technical term, but I, I know Antonio knows it's the, uh, the thing that you can adjust for your individual eyesight. The diopter. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That can come in handy. Yeah, especially for those of us who wear glasses. I mean, sometimes it's really hard to focus with glasses on. I also don't like putting my glasses up to my my camera because my glasses were very expensive and I don't want my camera to scratch my lenses. So I like to set the diopter for my eye, you know. So that's like in a pair of binoculars. You basically dial in whatever yeah. it is so that your eye can focus properly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, on mine, on my Canon, it's... I don't know if you guys have the same thing with your Nikons, but it's little squares that you see when you're looking through the viewfinder. And if you look at a white wall or the sky and play with that diopter, you can see the squares get blurry or tight. And if the, you're sharp, you're good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're talking about the like the grid marks in the viewfinder, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. The, I, I don't know, Tom, you're the Canon guy, so you tell me if Canon is different. But on Nikon, when you look through that and you see the little autofocus points that you... If you're in single point out of focus, you're going to have one of those active. In the Nikon world, they come in two forms, either a cross shape or a single line shape. And the cross shape ones are way more accurate because they measure the contrast in two directions. And the ones that are in the other shape are only half as good. And so I would say that if you're going to go with single point out of focus, try keep it to one of the good points. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I'm really not sure. I mean, mine. Um, well, even when I'm in single point, when I play with the diopter, they all go blurry or tight. Well, no, I'm not uh, talking about. The, sorry, I'm not talking about for the diopter. Uh-huh. I just mean in terms of when you're selecting your single point to be your single point. Oh, uh-huh. uh-huh. So in Nikon world, you have some pluses and some minuses. And so if you're using a minus, then it's only measuring the contrast on one axis. But if you're using a plus, it's measuring the contrast on two axis, so it's basically twice as good a focus point. I see, I see. Are you talking right, about, yeah. you're talking about um, the actual autofocus settings? Well, no, I mean, I mean, when you're looking through the lens, you see the little grid of points that you could potentially choose to be your autofocus. Right, right, right. They're not all the same, or at least they're not on the low-end Nikon camera. Are you talking about the pattern of them? Oh, well, yeah, right. but each individual uh, yeah. one is either a square bracket minus square bracket or a square bracket plus square bracket shape. Huh. I have to look at Yeah, I think it's different on my Canon, but um, you also might just be over my head, Bart. I'm not sure. Well, see, this was really important to me because my first DSLR was a Nikon D40, which had its weak point, shall we say, was its focus. That's the thing it was really uh-huh. It had a total of three autofocus points. One in the middle that was cross-shaped, and two on the edge that were the minus shapes. And I now have a newer Nikon, which has something like 30-odd focus points. But there are still some cross-shaped ones and some of the minus-shaped ones, and it is still the case that if you want to get the best results, stick to the pluses and avoid the minuses. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm looking through my viewfinder as we're talking, and I'm, I'm noticing... Um, they're sort of vertically and horizontally oriented. Um, yeah, so they're, I had never, you know, noticed that difference. But I suspect what you're saying is probably applicable to the Canon, too, that some are going to be more effective than others overall. Yeah, the direction of the line in Nikon World tells you which direction is in contrast. In. And what I noticed on my newer camera is that they now have a row of minor-shaped ones sitting at 45 degrees, so it's measuring contrast sort of on, a, on the diagonal instead of on the horizontal or the vertical axis. But anyway. Bart, huh. none of those are on my... It's so funny. The, like, as you're describing that, that does not sound familiar from my Nikons <laughs> on my 7000 or my uh, D300. I mean, it's basically a bunch of squares, right? I mean, rectangles in that, that are patterned, and then you can set up the patterns in different ways depending on the autofocus settings you do. But pluses and minuses doesn't sound familiar to me so i wonder if there's a real and have to look at the viewfinders the patterns of your cameras and my cameras compare them yeah i've never had the pleasure of having a high-end nikon (laughs) (laughs) so we may be seeing things very differently well it might again it might be patterned differently based on you know the the market that the cameras are are after you know it's like um well i mean the only reason they have the half as good sensors is because they're cheap right so mm-hmm. if they're charging you an arm and a leg for the camera. They probably didn't do that. They probably put in all good ones. Yeah. I would yeah. hope. Yeah. We hope. Yes, but, indeed. Uh, so. Hmm. It's okay. We got focus down. We got focus. So the next thing I had on my notes was you were talking about philosophy. I'm going to throw this out. You guys can argue <laughs> about it. And then we may have a third Tom's, Tom's the philosopher. Tom's the philosopher. JPEG or raw, folks? Oh please! <laughs> okay, I I I'm gonna take a stab at this because I've I've gone back and I haven't gone back and forth. I'm adamant in one direction, and then now I'm 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 not waffling, but I have a good reason to. Um, first of all, I would you know the with all due respect to um, what is his name? 
the guy who does all these uh, Ken Rockwell. Oh yes, he's a great. By the way, if anybody hasn't visited his site, you know he is a great reviewer. He's down to earth. Um, he he often talks more about Nikon stuff, I think. But um, I was going to say I've never bought a camera or a lens without checking whether or not checking. Ken hated it. Yeah, you know, and I would also go with him with a grain of salt. He's very opinionated, uh, and we I disagree with a lot of what he says, and I still admire it. And, and anyway, uh, I know in the past, I don't know where he's currently at, but he's a big JPEG person, um, and he's a professional shooter, and he's a JPEG person, and I don't agree with that. Um, but my like, I'm a raw person all the time, raw, 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 because why not? Um, yes, it does add a little extra processing at the end if you, but it gives you that option. You know, you have this digital negative, you have a lot more data to work with. I'm going to see if I can be, you know, short with this. Um, there's nothing wrong with shooting raw and JPEG. Um, because if you had to get pictures out fast, you know, you come back to your office and you don't have time to process the raw files. You got the JPEG files and you can send them to your client or send them out really quickly and then process the raws at leisure. Um, and then, in, and in terms of storage, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference. I mean, raw files and JPEGs. I mean, yes, JPEGs are smaller, but you know, we're working with three terabyte drives now for ninety nine dollars. So storage, I don't think, is an issue. Um, it's quality um, and the option for quality. Yeah, but, and you never know when you're going to want to go really big, blow something up, and yeah. and then you know you're. You're going to want the biggest file you have. And somebody once said to me, a good friend of mine said, you just, you never know beforehand when you're going to get that shot of a lifetime. So if you're always shooting raw, then, you know, if you get something that you're really, really excited about, you're going to be glad it's in raw. Yeah. Now, um, yeah. just for a second here, um, oh. Stefan has been able to join us. Um, he, he said he Hi, was Stefan. Late, so. Good evening, everyone. Hello. Hey, Stefan. Welcome Tom aboard. I'm yeah. glad you could make it. Um, it's good to hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good to see you. <laughs> so we've just gotten as far, Stefan, as having the discussion about whether RAW or JPEG. So do, do you have any thoughts on that? But oh, wait, I'm not finished yet. Oh, you're not? Okay, wait. Sorry. No, 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 Sorry, no. I cut you I, off, Antonio. My, it's okay. No, I went with my, like, I'm, like, I, to, I tell students and they're like, shoot RAW, 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 RAW. So fast forward, I bought this Fujifilm X20 camera and it shoots RAW and JPEGs. And lately, you know, I shoot RAW and JPEGs. And the thing about the JPEGs is that you set the camera up to record the JPEGs. You use the camera's processing to process the JPEG. So however the, the camera interprets a JPEG um, is what it's going to look like when it comes out of the camera. So Fuji has set up a bunch of presets in the camera for simulating their different film stocks, uh, Velvia, Astia, and et cetera. Lately, I've been shooting with this camera, and I shoot raw and JPEG, but I've been using the JPEGs. And the raws have been my backup. You know, I put those, you know, I put them in the Lightroom, and I look at them, and actually the newest version of Lightroom has Fuji presets, so I can actually simulate some of this. But I am... The processing in the JPEGs on this camera is is beautiful. And so what I've been doing lately is I've been popping the chip out of my Fuji after I shot it. I I import them into my iPad. Um, a lot of black and white pictures I've been doing, and we might want to put – we can put some of those in the show notes if you want. But um, the black and white is gorgeous, and I've been doing a little processing in Snapseed on my iPad, and I've been really happy with just the JPEGs. So – 
Whereas I would never not shoot the raws, but usually in the past I would process the raws and I would spit them out. This time I've been doing the opposite. I've been, I've been loving the JPEGs. I'm happy I have a raw backup if I want to do something else with it. But my final shot has been the JPEG from the camera. So, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily do that with Nikon's. I'm not. I don't really like Nikon's JPEG processing so much. But the Fuji's, the Fuji's, um, I feel differently about. So that's my. You know, okay. I've I've gone back and forth now. <laughs> well, no, it's good, right? People who make up their own mind because there are, there's no right answer. It's just what works best at the time. Uh, Tom, did you want to come in on that? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, Stefan, do you have an opinion on raw JPEG? Well, I, I've I've been shooting in raw ever since I have my DSLR, but uh, I think indeed in for quick sharing, uh, the JPEG is. is it's a lot easier to use to transfer to your mobile device and work on it uh, and do a little filter on it and throw it on Instagram or whatever. But I also keep my, my raw for uh, when I get back home and do some uh, some more uh, uh, advanced editing on the images. So I keep my raws as a backup, indeed. So you shoot raw plus JPEG? Uh, well, I shoot raw, uh, but uh, I think when transferring from... Uh, from my uh, Canon free Wi-Fi through my, to my smartphone, it gets uh, trans, uh, transcoded into JPEG, I believe. I don't think I have the raw images on my smartphone to work with. Okay. Um, me, per- personally, I am, I am an absolute raw addict, um, which is, I think, partly because I don't trust my Nikon to get the white balance right. Because quite often, mm-hmm. it really doesn't. It, it's, yellow seems to make it think the world has exploded. A field of yellow flowers, the Nikon, is lost at sea. Completely gone. It'll even, it'll even get the wrong exposure value. And hmm. so I'll always shoot in raw, and then I like, I like to pump the colors in my photographs. I like my colors to really, pump, you know, to really have pop. And if your white balance is even the teeny tiniest bit off, as soon as you slide that vibrancy slider up, it, you really make the image into a complete mess. So if you're going to be rough with the vibrancy slider, you have to be really accurate with the white balance. And since I don't trust the Nikon to do it in the field, I'll shoot raw because then I know that I can fix it later if Nikon makes it silly. Can I mm-hmm. can I interject something in this? You can. Yeah. yeah. All the cameras, I mean the Nikons, the Canons, the Fujis, they all all your JPEGs are going to get processed however the you've set up the picture profile on the camera mm. to do. The Nikon has a lot of tweaks. You can tweak white balance. You can create your own picture profile where you could get the white balance and the contrast and the vibrancy uh, or saturation, I guess, in the cameras to the way you want it. So you could probably create it. Maybe not you, Bart, but I mean you in general can create a JPEG style, like a film style that you might like for your JPEGs. It may not be good for every occasion, like, you know. Sunset throws white balance off completely, you know, because of the the amount of extra orange in the in the in yeah. the scene. And I guess but, what you actually want in the sunset is a not is not a technically mathematically correct white balance. No, actually, you don't want you don't often you don't want often, yeah. in a lot of pictures. I mean, you know, when you white balance in an apartment, like you know, people are sitting around. Now, you don't want the the whole picture to look yellow because everybody's got the incandescent lights on. Yeah. But if you were to white balance that perfectly, it looks weird too. I mean, it, you know, mm. everybody, everything, it doesn't look natural. Everybody's sitting in a living room and they look like they're lit unnaturally. So you kind of want to have an off white balance a little bit on, 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 on certain styles of pictures. So I bought myself a gray card last summer. And what I found is that it will get you to the mathematically correct white balance. 
But you're going to find yourself nudging it either to the blue or to the yellow on just about all of them because you're not actually looking for an accurate white balance. It's not a science experiment. You're looking for a mm-hmm. feel. Yeah. And sometimes you want a cooler feel, so you'll nudge it to the blue. And sometimes you want a warmer feel, so you'll nudge it to the orange. And yeah, you know that it's not mathematically correct, but this isn't a, math, a maths exercise. This is an art exercise. But, uh, Absolutely. Do, yeah. Do, do you all uh, set your right balance in your camera, or do you that uh, do you do that afterwards and in post processing? Well, we talk about workflow. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a pretty important setting when you're in the field, right? It is an important setting when you're in the field, and it and it becomes way more important when you're shooting JPEGs only. Um, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the other reason to shoot RAW, because in RAW it's just a metadata setting. Um, so, you know, I once, I don't say I shot a job, but I think I once went out and shot a bunch of stuff uh, with the wrong white balance on, and I got back and I'm like, oh, darn, but it's just a setting that I can tweak when I'm doing my post processing because the pictures were raw. Mm-hmm. If they're JPEGs, then it's those, those um, white balance settings are baked into the picture, and there's no way you're going to get that out. And if you try to fix it, forget it. The picture is going to look terrible. So, I think it's an important thing to do in the field. It's also, you know, we talk about is it maybe as a workflow best practices kind of kind of thing. You, you know, you have your white balance set, or you know, most cameras do a decent job, like on a normal day in most situations with automatic white balance. Um, but again, if you're shooting raw, you can tweak that later if you have to. Yeah, I tend to work on auto for landscape stuff and general out and about stuff. But if I'm doing astronomy stuff, yeah, the empty sky confuses the camera no end because I guess it likes to have at least some light to work with and when you give it almost no light it gets really really messed up in its head and so for mm-hmm. the astronomy stuff I put in a I hard cut in a white balance of 500 or basically daylight um, because moonlight is sunlight and starlight is sunlight, sunlight sort of They're just so, very far away suns yeah exactly there are lots of different suns away somewhere else so that actually works really well and then it also means that the light pollution is always the same shade of orange given off by the sodium atom and it means you can subtract the white balance much more easily in post because it's just mm-hmm. that one color you select mm-hmm. desaturate mm-hmm. deluminescence and you're done hmm. one thing i suggest that people do i mean you, you talk about a white balance card or gray card i mean you have to get a specific kind a kind of white balance card if you really want to get technical by the numbers you really need a card that has uh, or um, a gray card that has no color in it and but it has to be gray like a light gray you often don't want to use a piece of paper because the paper has optical brighteners in them. Like, you know, copy paper is artificially white and, and there can be colors in the paper that the camera can be sensitive to. So it can, you know, if you do white balance off of a piece of paper, it may not be the perfect white balance. So if you get yourself a gray card um, that's appropriate for white balance, it's great. But if you're going to do things like if you're doing – what was I going to say? Like I know some people like to photograph artwork. Mm. Um, and often I suggest like for your first picture that you're going to take, you include a gray card in the picture so that you have something to white balance against in post-processing because you can white balance later too. Yeah. Actually, so no, if I should you... say that when I said I bought a, a gray card last summer, that's exactly what I do. So I go out in a landscape shoot. I hold up my, you know, the gray card at arm's length, take a picture of my hand, mm-hmm. just the one, and that will do me for the entire afternoon because the yeah. sun is the sun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good thing. It's a good practice to get into uh, if you want to have consistency, um, especially in post-processing. So since we are talking about in the field, is it uh, – I've heard some, some, some people mention that uh, if you don't have a gray card with you, that you can white balance on, on something uh, like a, a concrete uh, floor or a concrete wall. Is that actually accurate? 
Again, if the I wall, do. I if do the that wall, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, for a again, you evacuate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, but uh, oh, you know, uh, it's averaging out. If there's any kind of color, like you know, in in the cement, you know, if there's any kind of um, material that's in the cement that has a color and has an overall shade, it may not be perfectly. I mean, you want. A perfect white balance card will have no color whatsoever. It'll just be gray. Um, yep. So it might be. It might be. I don't know. It depends on the concrete. It depends how it was made. Yeah, no, and, yeah. Uh, and as we were saying, I mean, you know, sometimes being mathematically precise, you know, does not actually yield an image that's white balanced, that's pleasing to the eye, or looks even kind of, you know, uh, aesthetically pleasing. But, you know, I, I mean, I think that. Custom white balancing, taking a picture of something gray and just setting the camera to that, you know, it just nudges things in, in, in the right direction. What is probably the right direction. Yeah, exactly. I guess, I, so I like doing that. Yeah, I mean, you know, post-processing is for the next discussion, but ultimately what you're trying to do in the field is get as close as you can to what you want to get out of the end results because the closer you are mm-hmm. in the field, the, le- the less hassle you have later. Right, so you, exactly. you want to have that white balance set so that it's a lot, you don't have to go through 2,000 pictures later and reset the white balance for every single shot. So do it, you know, do it ahead of time. Yeah, get it right. yeah. in fact, if, if it's consistently wrong the whole way through the shoot, it's still easy to fix later because you just consistently apply the same adjustment. Correct. Uh-huh. Sync settings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, now... Just checking how we're doing here for time. We are running at 45 minutes, which isn't too bad, so we okay. have more to talk about. So at this stage, we've managed to hold our camera so it doesn't shake. We've managed to get what we want in focus, we hope. We've decided whether we're doing a JPEG or a RAW, and we've figured out what we're doing with our white balance. So the next obvious part of the exposure triangle that comes to mind would be, so how do we meet her? How do we actually figure out how long the shutter should be up for? Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I am the shutter speed guy of the two of us. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's the relationship between aperture and shutter speed. I'd, um, I mean, I would also throw in ISO just depending on the conditions. Like if I'm walking down the street and I'm going to be doing street photography or street art, you know, and it's a reasonably, um, you know, whether it's if it's bright and sunny, then you know the the ISO would probably I'd set it like one or two hundred, and if it's kind of overcast, which we all probably feel is better for shooting in general, you know, I'll be you maybe around. Poland, you'd love it. Yeah. I know, I know. Oh, Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> we had a day like that yesterday, and I was I was kicking myself for not having made it to the botanic gardens where. Antonio has done the calendar for them, and it's a really beautiful garden. And it was just perfect light, you know, because it was kind of overcast. But, yeah, I mean, you know, with with the reasonable ISO set, um, you know, I mean, I I honestly don't think just in terms of shutter speed or aperture. I mean, if I'm out there shooting hawks in the city, which I like to do, then I would have a real fast shutter speed and, compensate for that you know by opening up the aperture more but it's a balance i just look down at my at the light meter which on my canon you know i can just look down on my camera and i kind of hold it you know around my chest and look down and and just by 
tweaking the aperture and shutter speed, I can get that light meter around in the sweet spot. And then depending on the kind of image I want to get, kind of take it from there. Well, I think the light meter is actually sort of where I was hoping to steer the conversation towards because that can be a little bit of voodoo to people because the light meter can be a little bit dumb from time to time. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a good starting point, but if you're a slave to the light meter, yeah, you're in trouble. Because it has no brain, right? So the light meter right. slave is you trying to get what it considers to be the mathematically correct exposure, which is an average of about 18% gray. But if you're standing on a snowy field, the average is not mm-hmm. 18% gray. Well, can I, I'm just going to add, it's, it, I wouldn't say it's dumb. I mean, they were a lot dumber because they were just measuring light. And now there's apparently all these, you know, you know the Nikon's got 30,000 exposures that, they've, that the engineers have done. Um, so the meters have gotten a little smarter, but, you know, there's in an infinite amount of different exposures. So it obviously it can't be an infinite amount of um, programming that it can fall back on to, to look at the scene and say, oh, well, that looks like something, you know, the Nikon's recorded, you know, in my memory bank. So I'll just use that exposure. But... I mean, I've seen the progression of meters since, you know, my old Pentax days, which was a little line and two pluses, and you try to get in the middle. And they've, they've done a really good job. But you, you're right. I mean, they're generally dumb, and you need to look at the, you know, um, scene and make your best choice and say, well, yes, you're going to shoot a polar bear in the snow. And if you, you use the light meter reading, it's going to say, well, it's, it's white. And it's white. It's too bright. So you're going to. It's going to force you to stop down, and of course, you're going to have a gray bear in gray snow, which is nowhere near as much fun. But what's before. funny is that it will do the same thing with a coal <laughs> miner. It will do the same thing with a coal miner in a dark cave. Yeah, he'll be a gray coal miner instead of a black. Right, coal actually, miner. if you use it, yeah, yeah. yeah, he'll be brought up. If you, that's a very interesting thing. The light meter is going to read both of those scenes in a similar way. You have to change your exposure to get the, the shot. One will be a higher exposure, one will be a lower exposure. But in the end, the 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 gray values of a of a you know, polar bear in the snow and a coal miner in a cave. Um, if you just use the meter and you don't use the the programming on the meter, the, the pictures look exactly the same. Yeah, so so is, that's if, when if you're in manual, that's easy to deal with. You look at your picture and go, "Ooh, too bright or too dark. I need a bit more or a bit less exposure." But if you're working uh-huh. one of the auto modes, uh, you you need to realize that what you actually have to do is you need to tell the camera that you understand that it's measured the light this way. But you want to override that measurement, and this is probably one of the most important settings if you're in half auto, is the exposure compensation and the exposure bias. What you're doing there is you're telling the camera to go brighter than it thinks it should, or darker Mm -hmm. than it thinks it should. And if you don't use that setting, you're going to tie yourself into knots. Yeah. So in the case of uh, the snowy landscape with the bear, uh, the the camera will think it's, it's way too bright. So what do I have to do? Do I have to underexpose or overexpose for that? Over. So you want Over. So yes, it's going to try exactly. average it to gray, but you want to make it be white. So you need to dial in positive. So make yeah. it brighter. Yeah, and if you my then initial... go down into the cave, you mm-hmm. go the other way. My initial reflection would be, uh, as, a, as a beginner, it's too bright. So I have to uh, make it darker. So underexpose. But it's actually the other way around. I have to overexpose to get... Okay, you're, you're biasing Correct. the meter, not affecting the exposure. Mm-hmm. So what you're actually doing is you're adding a correction to the measurement, not a change in the brightness you want. And that well, but you are, heads. but you are overexposing. Yeah, you are overexposing. Technically, you are overexposing. You're you're allowing okay, more yeah. light. You're allowing more light than the camera is 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 recommending, and that that you know overexposure and underexposure is all relative, of course. So. Mm. 
you're overexposing to what the camera is saying. This is, you know, 18% gray, whichever, whatever that means. And, um, and you're saying, I have to add more light. So anytime you add more light, you are overexposing. And overexposure is not a bad word. It's not a mistake. You know, yeah, neither no, is underexposure. Yeah, it's over what the dumb light meter. Well, yeah, and I yeah. use the word dumb not as a pejorative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hurt. yeah. Tom, I think you're getting a little yeah static on your. Sounds strange. Well, we've crossed the magical one hour since we started the Skype call, which means that the headset has. <laughs> and it is literally it is on the money. It happened at exactly zero one zero zero really? zero zero. Really? Yeah, on All the right. button. We'll we'll figure that out with him. We'll get him a. It's a certain uh, brand. It's a certain chipset within headsets. So if you plug it out and plug it back in, it should be fine for another hour. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did you plug it out? Yeah. Yeah, he's vanished. So. He's vanished. so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And yeah. you're back. And you're perfect. It's it's on the hour every hour. It's quite bizarre. That's funny. Right. Wow. Oh, well, just um, keep track of time. It does yeah. really, doesn't it? Because that means that we now have about <laughs> ten minutes left. So yeah, I mean, going back to the meter thing, it's it's um, the other thing is you have to understand. I mean, this is going to photo school again, but the camera meter is reading light that's being reflected off of the subject. So the camera meter is called the reflective light meter. So for professional photographers, carry around sometimes with them a light meter that's separate from the camera, and often it has a little white dome on top of it, mm-hmm. and usually that can that kind of meter is is called an incident light meter it's not reading reflective light in other words camera's looking at the scene it's seeing the light that's bouncing off the subject and coming into the lens hmm. an incident light meter is actually reading the light that's falling on the subject which is why you see a photographer put a light meter on top of someone's face because it wants to they want to read the intensity of the light that's falling on the subject and so they tend to get a little more of an accurate exposure but it's not practical in every you know situation to whip out a light meter and stick it on someone's face in a landscape shot you may have a bit of a hike to get it onto your subject well in a landscape (laughs) shot the light is usually the same where you are than what you're shooting so you can usually just use the light meter and hold it in front of you um and unless there's you know a sunset or you're in the shade or something like that but generally you know if you're on a beach setting and you want to shoot the beach and you're in this you're on the beach you can take a handheld light meter and you can hold it out and take a reading and in fact I just looked in front of me. I have a light meter for my iPhone that I was part of a Kickstarter campaign for, the Lumu. Have you seen that? L-U-M-U. Oh, you think I have? Doesn't it plug into the headphone jack or something? It plugs into the headphone. I got this little little pouch. It came with a nice little pouch. And it's got a really nice, simple app. And you plug it in, and it's a half dome. And with your smartphone, you can get an um, incident light meter reading wherever you are. And... You know, it's funny because these cameras are automatic. So you just take a picture and you look at it in the back and say, well, you know, I'll fix it. You know, I'll change the exposure. So why do I need a light meter? But sometimes when you're lighting things, you want to understand the relationship of the light in the scene. Like you want to know that the light on the right is twice as bright as the light on the left. And a light meter will help you understand that ratio. And sometimes you might need that. So you can understand that I need to expose for what's on the right more than I have to expose what's on the left. And then you'll understand that one part will be less exposed and they would be proper exposed. So there sometimes is a need for um, still a need for an external light meter. So anyway, I think it's like 120 bucks. So it's cheap. As it's expensive. Meters. Yeah, it's well, light meters can be really expensive. I have one that's like $500. Yeah, that's, yeah so, so, so you say 120 one. quid is cheap, but that needs the caveat 
as light what? meters go. <laughs> as light meters go, yes. And again, it's a it's a very you know specialized function if you need it. I mean, most people don't walk around needing a light meter, but sometimes it's it's it can be very helpful. So anyway, I wanted to bring that up cool. about light meters. Um, we've already mentioned that you can help your light meter by using the exposure compensation. But something else I think we probably need to mention is the fact that you, our modern cameras have different metering modes. Mm-hmm. So I think the default is that it just averages the entire scene, which is matrix metering, I think it's called on Nikon. So what, is that called something else on Canon, Tom? That sounds mm. familiar. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Okay. And basically, so that's just taking everything in the scene and averaging it and trying to get it to 18%. And, 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 so, and the, sorry, in the modern cameras, they they're comparing to a, a data bank of you know previously captured exposures that the Nikon or Canon engineers have programmed into the cameras. So if you you can imagine that if you're standing in a tunnel and you're looking out at the world, that kind of light metering mode is going to be very bad because it's going to average out the dark tunnel and the bright outside and expose neither correctly. So that's where there's this concept of of um, spot metering where you tell the camera basically you tell the light meter which point in the exposure it should be measuring at and so if you're standing in a tunnel you can tell it expose for the bit outside the tunnel and then the tunnel will go dark but that's probably what you wanted and you get your nicely framed scene that's properly exposed outside the tunnel Mm-hmm. yeah a similar trick you know is just like when you're Say you're in a situation where somebody's backlit, you mm-hmm. know, you can use your light meter, just go turn away from the light, focus, you know, meter on mm-hmm. something that's not being so brightly bright lit. And then, and then when you turn back towards your subject, your subject, you know, will be nicely lit and there'll be a lot of bright light from behind. But, you know, that can be a cool image. But when you're looking at the subject who's backlit, your light meter will be going crazy, you know, but. You can just turn um, away meter on something and then turn back and shoot it. Also, also one of the things I learned from my film days is exposing sunsets. If you were to take your camera you know, and you see the sun setting and you want to take a picture of it, especially with a telephoto lens, and you point that lens at the sun, it's going to read the sun and it's going to say that's way too bright. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the first two exposures you're going to get are this – probably a pretty well-exposed sun, like being very dark, but then the rest of it, like the the sky around it, will be black. So um, using a spot meter for the place where you measure the light for the sun is like a few degrees away from the sun. So you actually move the sun out of your frame and you meter to the sky to the left or the right of the sun. Then you lock your exposure there and then you go back and take the picture and you'll have a nicely exposed sun plus you'll have a nicely exposed you know, sky and sky clouds around it. next to it. So the spot meter is really useful for that thing. I wanted to add, though, and the, as a professional, mm-hmm. you know, you can set your, your meter to the spot meter, the matrix meter, or, or an averaging meter. I always forget when I take my first shot, just like Tom and I talk in our class about, you know, forgetting to set the ISO. I always forget what my meter reading is, my meter is set in. So I'll start, I'll start taking my first few exposures and I'll realize, oh, it's still in spot meter mode from yesterday. Yeah. So, you know, and then my exposures are all messed up because it's been spot metering my picture. So I wanted to suggest as a tip, uh, many cameras have a function button, which you can program. I tend to like to take that function button and program it as a spot meter. So that the occasions that I need to use a spot meter, I use the function button, I click that on, and I get a spot meter temporarily. 
and then I'm able to turn it off. That's, that's so. a pretty good tip. But yeah, cause, and the thing to say about the spot meter is it's actually quite... I won't use the word dangerous, but it may not do what you think it does. Because it's actually going to get that spot to 18% grey. So if you put that spot on a white wall, your exposure is going to be right. not what you expect. If you put that spot on something black, your exposure is not going to be what you expect. So there is actually a magic halfway house called center-weighted metering, which is, instead of it being a spot, it's like a blob. And it averages a blob in the middle of your field of view. And that's probably is that the, is that the technical term? Blob? Blob. Oh, yeah, totally technical <laughs> term, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Um, and that's one actually because I, I almost never use spot spot metering but I will use center weighted if I'm in a forest or something like that the spot meter really comes in handy when, uh, but in the situation that Tom was talking about when you have a backlit person um, and maybe it's not practical to turn away but if you put it in spot meter and you just focus on their chest or their face the spot meter will read them pretty well and then and then you've, you're going to get this nicely backlit exposure but they'll be exposed nicely so I find that's a good time. And that's when I use it on my function button because then it's really fast because I'm, you know, maybe shooting an event or something like that and I might not have time to turn away. So I want to go boom. I want to get a quick spot meter, find out what they're exposed at, let go, take, start taking shots. Um, we're going for an hour and ten, but I w- if people are happy, I'm going to keep going for another couple of minutes because I have two more things I think we would be well served to discuss. Are people happy to? I am. Sure. Yeah, I can so the first thing is a question to you guys. So, do you bracket and why? So, who wants to go first? Does I'll go first. Bracket? I'll go first. I no longer bracket. Okay. Uh, not as a not as a um, um, not usually. I mean, I, you know, if I'm bracketing, it's because I want to do a, uh, an HDR picture, maybe, or like I want to like I mean, when I was shooting the botanic garden calendars i would often bracket because i would want some um ability to get a low exposure and high exposure and and blend the the image um but as a matter of course um i do not bracket anymore um neither white balance bracketing or exposure bracketing okay oh we should probably mention actually i forgot to say what bracketing is before i asked you that question that's probably silly of me um by bracketing i simply mean for any listeners this thing you know taking believe the meter take the shot intentionally bias the meter too bright, take a shot. Intentionally bias the meter too dark, take a shot. So when you get home, hopefully one of those three is just right. At least that's the theory. Um, Antonio, or not Antonio, sorry. Uh, Tom, do you, how do you feel about bracketing? You know, it's, it's always seemed, um, I've, I've had a reluctance to do it just because I guess mainly it's just sort of, you know, feels like the camera is kind of taking over and if something turns out great it's because you know the camera was doing these things for me i don't know maybe that's strange i mean i i like the idea and it seems practical and i've certainly taken thousands of shots that i wish i had bracketed <laughs> but you know i yeah i just i don't use it i i guess it's also and this is something that interests me, you know, I think as as a photographer, I realize, you know, so much of what I do is habitual. You know, I have my patterns and my inclinations and I just, it's not something that I've ever really played around with all that much. And, you know, it could very well be one of those things, oh, if I, you know, maybe I'll try to start bracketing and then realize, wow, this is something I should have started a long time ago. But 
you know, somehow right now I enjoy just taking an image, you know, looking at the back of the camera if it's not what I want, making an adjustment. Of course, you know, there's plenty of situations where you don't have that luxury. You have one opportunity to get an image, and if you're in bracketing mode, then you're going to get three, and if you're not, you're going to get one. <laughs> but, yeah, I just, it's not something I do. Okay. Uh, Stefan, do you bracket or no? I've used it a few times to take some uh, some multiple exposures when uh, shooting in the dark, for example. But uh, other than that, I haven't been using it uh, at all. Yeah, and myself, I I never I never use auto bracketing, which is the feature where you tell the camera that every time I push the shutter, mm-hmm. you know, do it a little each side. But if I'm in a if I'm doing a landscape shot and I notice that there's a high dynamic range, I'll do it just in case. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, I'll never use the brackets, but. Every now and then, I just realize that ooh, this is almost a good shot, but I've lost my shadows. What if mm-hmm. I blend these two exposures, or what if I HD or these? And you know, so so I'll do it sometimes, but on the whole, I don't do it religiously. Yeah, that's a, that's the same thing I do. I mean, if I'm taking you know street scenes uh, out my window and I have a bright sky and I want to get the buildings, I'll I'll do a quick you know bracket. Um, I might not use the bracketing feature in the camera. I might just go boom once and then change my exposure and go boom again. Uh, and then figure that I'll align them later in Photoshop. Um, but I used to use the auto bracketing all the time. I was when I shot at the Botanic Garden, I did auto bracketing because I was really nervous because it was a client. So I want to make sure I got the pictures. I got a million pictures. I was using like seven frame auto bracketing. Ooh, Ooh that's because right. I had a really, I had a, a five to seven frame, and I would come back and I was like, you know. I, what am I going to do with all these pictures? <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> I'm not doing that again. You know, I figure three would be the most because now the sensor is a little bit better on the cameras uh, than when I was shooting back then. But, you know, it's just three times as many pictures. So it might be good under certain circumstances, but as a general thing, no. And and I don't um, – some of my cameras have white balance. The Fuji has white balance bracketing. Uh, I, I don't know why I would want to use that. I mean, because well, I'm shooting, shooting – JPEG. Well, but if I might as well shoot raw. If, I mean, if mm. you know, if I'm going to make three JPEG exposures, which is going to take as much space up as one raw file. So why not just do a raw file? Why would I want to use? It just seems like yeah. a gimmick on some cameras. So, yeah. it is an odd one to choose, all right? Because I know that it's possible. Another reason people do bracketing sometimes is focus bracketing, so you can get these like impossible depth of fields on macros. But then, well, you- yeah, the, yeah, processing. yeah. The new version, the newer version of Photoshop, lets you blend multiple focus uh, images, but meh. Again, it's like my practical day-to-day thing. It's like, I don't know. You know I don't use it. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. The only, basically, I do it by using the exposure compensation. So I'll just hold down the exposure compensation, click three times, which is plus one. You know, fire, click six times, fire. Click three times the other way again, back to where I started. And I'll only do it if, if, I, have a, if I suspect I'm about to lose a shadow or a highlight. And the, the very last thing, which I think we should mention, just because I know people sometimes end up with worse photographs than they should because they assume that actually okay so our camera our lenses all have a certain range of apertures they'll work over and you might be very tempted to say well i want i'm doing a landscape photograph i want everything to be sharp so i should shoot at the highest possible aperture that this lens can support and that's a way to come home with lots of very poor images because the lens actually doesn't like working in the extremes every lens has a sweet spot and well i guess you're gonna have to learn your own lens but don't be tempted to go for f22 for everything because i i screwed up that way so badly 
Yeah, you're getting into the technical talk of uh, – I always get the phrase messed up. Can you help me, Bart? What's it called? Well, the sweet spot, I believe. is No, the, no. the problem with going down to F22 is uh, – I want to say dispersion. Oh, dispersion. oh. Diffraction. That's the one. Yeah. It's diffraction. Yeah, there's a certain point that your lens, after you start – you will get a larger depth of field, so you will get more in focus if you go to a um, larger F number. But because of the way the physics of light work – um, and the, the, the tighter you make the aperture, the, so the smaller the hole and the larger the F number, you'll get light starting to spill out into different, um, uh, pixels. Um, so you'll end up with a softer image, even though a lot more will be in focus, the actual details will be much softer. Um, and it's really interesting to do this. You can do a test with your own lens. You can just take a picture of a newspaper, you know, set yourself up on a tripod and take a picture of a newspaper and change the the f-stop through the whole scale and you'll see as you start getting towards past f-16 that the, the type starts to get fuzzier um and so you can that's a good way to test your lenses too so you can find that sweet spot and even if you do it wide open you'll get a little bit of a softer um, um effect on your picture so you should if you're interested in this test out all your lenses by just shooting a newspaper to do the different f-stops and you'll see where that range is on your lens and every lens will be different Every single lens will be different. Um, I've got a I've got a twenty eight to seventy. It's one of the best ni- lenses Nikon ever made. It is its sharpest at five six. It, it's it's illegally sharp that lens. <laughs> <laughs> it should be registered as a weapon. It's so sharp, but it, it it gets softer as it gets down to it's it's an old lens and it wasn't formulated for digital. It was formulated for film. So when you get past sixteen, it really begins to pick up some softness. So and it's something. Something I often hear when people buy the Nifty Fifty lens, and we all love our Nifty Fifty lenses if we have one, and yeah. you know, say, oh, "Okay, so I bought a lens that goes to f one point four, but I never, I almost never shoot my f one four lens any smaller than f two eight." People say to me, "But that's a waste. Why didn't you just buy a cheaper lens?" It's like, well, actually, my f one four lens will take way better pictures at f two eight than an f two eight lens will at f two eight because the f two eight lens is at its extreme. My lens mm-hmm. is comfortably in its middle. Yeah, yeah, you know, wow. That's a great point. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I true. Swear, I've been doing this for years. I haven't thought about it that way. That's right. You're already, you're already beginning to get in the sweet spot of the lens, huh? Yeah. So just stay away from the edges if you can. You can't yeah. always, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I'm doing yeah. astronomy stuff, I'm not doing it at f five six because ooh, if I go the whole way to f four on my ten millimeter lens, I'm at the extreme. No, yeah. I'll do it at f four. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, you have to, right? Yeah. But yeah. during the day, I, I'll use my F1.4 lens at F2.8 all the time and get such creamy, beautiful bokeh. It's, it's mm. Yeah. I mean, also, if you have that 1.4 lens and you happen to be a place that's pitch black and you need to take a picture of something mm-hmm. and you have to be wide open, then you got it. You know, yeah, so it's exactly. great to and have. You, will. You, know? you, have, you have it available to you if you need it. But don't, basically, it's very tempting to run your lenses after extremes because that sounds like you're getting the more power, you know, sort of the power sort of feeling yeah, out of your lens. Yeah. But yeah. that's not necessarily the best way to get a good photo. Yeah, I agree. Also, those extreme lenses that are 1.4, they tend to be a little bit more pricey. So, too. Unless you buy Sigma. <laughs> it's still, it's still, you're putting quite an investment. I'm going to, you know, this is maybe off subject a little bit, but I always like to say you're going to invest in your glass. Your, the glass is the stuff that you're going to keep for the longest amount of time. You might switch camera bodies over time. But, you know, investing money in the lenses, I think, is. In my opinion, your best option because 
you know, the bodies will change over time. But you get those good quality lenses. You know, so someone wants to buy a $50 lens, I'm like, don't, but, you know. You, the laws of physics are the laws of physics. Like, you yeah. know, if the lens is good at bending light today, it'll be good at bending light tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, actually, the, the Sigma lens did the weirdest thing ever. It's gone up in price. I can now sell it secondhand for more than it cost me to buy new. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Nice. The only time that's ever happened to me because that's not how my <laughs> life normally goes. But in that That's case, awesome. That's great. Well, you're not going to sell it, I assume, right? Good God, it's no. A good... It's a gorgeous lens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the same with like the Nikon, uh, the Nikon uh, manual focus lenses. Those Because the, the, the people want them now to do video with. Um, and the old, a lot of the old manual lenses are great, and so those are those are the secondary market for that. They're really expensive. Yeah. Hey, we've been running for an hour and twenty. If anyone has any final thoughts, by all means, have at it. Tom, I'll let you go first. Um, I'm I'm just uh, pondering that notion of the sweet spot, you know, and not and avoiding the extremes of lenses, um, which I think is just. Such a great point to make. So it's got me thinking of some of my lenses and, again, some habitual patterns of mine of maxing things out, you know, and and how, yeah, I agree, Bart, that's not always the best way to get the um, the best image. So I'm just re- reiterating what Bart said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do think this is a podcast. I'm bright red now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, Stefan, do you have any, any final thoughts? You don't have to, by the way. I'm just saying if anyone has any final thoughts. Mm, no, not really. No. That's a sign that we rounded out to this question. Well, Antonio? I got, I got just a couple of quick tips. I just thought, I mean, because we Great. talked about this is in the field, you know. Um, one of the things I, I like to do is also I download all my camera manuals and I put them on my smartphone as PDFs because the manuals these days are like 300 pages. And we were talking about earlier about the autofocus on the cameras. I I still find myself having to refer back to it to find out how my autofocus is going to work. So, you know, carrying around those manuals in a, in a PDF form is, is one of the things I do all the time when I'm out in the field um, so that I'm never having to say, well, why does it, how's, what's it doing? You know? So, Part of this is like summing up like learning – like when you're talking about the lenses, is like learning the capabilities of your equipment. Yeah. You know? Um, and like you know, you can do these little tests ahead of time and bring the manual with you. But like knowing what you're holding in your hands and, and how to use it. Cool. I'm just going to end with one really practical tip. You know, organize your camera bag in such a way that you can tell at a glance whether or not you've left something in the tall grass. Ah. Because once you move away from wherever you're standing in the tall grass, good night, good luck, that is gone. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been we, there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We do. That's I do. One. At the end of a shoot, especially with video, you know, after everything's packed up, I do this in photography too, is um, do an idiot check. It's like after everything's packed up, like literally have everybody scour the site that you were there. Uh, if you're by yourself, I just go over and like look at it twice, make sure I didn't leave anything. Um but yeah, organizing the bag so that you know, like, wait, there was supposed to be something in that pouch and it's not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do a lot of stuff at night. And yeah. I will always, last thing when my night vision is already bust and I'm leaving, scan everywhere with a torch. But it's so easy to miss something in the dark that it's much easier to scan your bag yeah. than it is to scan your environment. Yeah, absolutely. Buy a camera bag that's got a light-colored interior. <laughs> yeah, you said that last Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, true. 
there were a lot of these camera bags that came out there had black interiors and I was like what are you talking about I can't see anything all photography equipment is black mm. black on black I can't tell where everything is you know well unless you, know, you buy, buy really expensive Canon lenses they're all black <laughs> yeah but there's all the little knickknacks too there's like the lens caps and the even the SD cards they're black you know so um, you know, again, buy yourself a, like, as Bart would say, you know, like a $10 torch and carry with you. It's very bright and, and, uh, scan, scan everything, but light colored interior really helps. Yeah, that is on my list now for the next time I buy a camera bag. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's on my list because I got so badly bitten is make sure there's somewhere for your tripod. I, I, I was shocked to find that someone sold a DSLR bag with nowhere to hang your tripod, but I accidentally bought it. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. Hmm. and they took the bag off sale a few months later and replaced it with a new version with only one change I could see. You <laughs> can hold a tripod now. <laughs> anyway, actually, vice versa. Sorry, I was going to say, you know, a lot of tripods have hooks in the middle of them. You ever notice in the post? Yes. You hang your camera bag from that to keep the cat to keep it uh, keep the tripod more stable. So if your camera bag's not too heavy and it's yeah. got a loop, but that's what I use that little hook for, so that if I'm in a windy condition, I hang my mm. tri- or you know, even if not, I'll hang my bag around the tripod somehow to add the extra weight, so that the tripod is not wibbly wobbly. Which goes right back to our very first point: have a solid base to shoot from. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And We've the other thing is, like, I ended up spending three hundred euro of money I didn't have to spend because my tripod blew over. If I hung <sighs> my bag on it, probably wouldn't have blown over. Ooh. And then you have all your yeah, stuff right in front trick. of you too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have the video. It's on my. It's on my YouTube stream. If you ever want to see it, of what it looks like when you shatter a DSLR. I absolutely do not want to look at that. Oh, it hurts me to this day every time I watch it because it's shake, 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 bigger, shake, bigger, shake, and we've crossed the magic point. No. Uh, not for the faint of heart. No, not for the faint of heart. Anyway, uh, we've got a little long, but I thought it was a really fun show. So thank you very much, guys. Um, Stefan, since you weren't here for the start, um, you didn't get to do a plug at the start. So remind people where they can listen to more of your great stuff. Well, people can find uh, our Dutch podcast at uh, tech45.eu. EU, and if uh, they want to contact me, they can always find me on Twitter at Stefan Lesage. You probably want to spell that, Stefan. Yeah, that's uh, S-T-E-F-A-A-N and then L-E-S-A-G-E. Thank you very much for joining us, um, and thank you for, for rushing in, even though you, you, you had something else on. Thank you. No problem. Um, and then the two guys from Switch to Manual. Who, who wants to take the lead on the plugging? Um, I'll, I'll take a stab. Go for Tom it. Tom, back me up. Yeah. Um, Tom and uh, me, uh, Antonio, were Switch to Manual guys. We teach photo workshops in Brooklyn and New York City. Um, we can be found at uh, switchtomanual.com and on Twitter as switch the numeral two manual, switch to manual. Save that one extra character in Twitter. Hey, it's important. Yeah, and Facebook too for those of us who are on the Facebook, uh, switch to manual on the Facebook. And we've got uh, upcoming workshops that we'd like to plug in, uh, in May in Red Hook, New York and uh, Coney Island, right, Tom? Yeah, yeah, we're excited about the Coney Island one. We've been trying to set this up for a while, and there's a Coney Island USA Museum that really kind of celebrates the history of all the um, outrageously photogenic stuff that goes on down there in Coney Island. So on May 24th, which is a Saturday, we'll be doing a one-day workshop out of the museum down there. So that, that should be a lot of fun. 
Yeah, so if you're in the New York area or coming to Brooklyn, you know, come and join us. And you have an open, both of you guys have an open invitation. Uh, we will comp you on our class. <laughs> I was going to say, assuming we manage to cross the Atlantic, we'll, we'll definitely make it as far as either Coney Island or Red Hook, did you say? Yeah. Red Hook, yeah. Uh-huh. They're, they're both on the yeah. water, you know? So. Around the summer solstice, there's a mermaid parade, which is kind of the equivalent oh, of Mar- Mardi Gras. It's just a wild, mad parade, and uh, it's really fun to shoot. So keep that in mind. Cool. And I, I guess New York is also a big thing on the uh, 17th of March. Yes. Oh. Is that yes, the it was. <laughs> St. <laughs> no, St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes the time you don't always want to go out because there's a lot of crazy. A lot of drunk yeah. people. Yeah. A lot of drunk I've got people. a lot of blurry shots from this past weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, but Bart, it was a great, it's a great pleasure to uh, have us on. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm delighted that you guys keep agreeing to come on. <laughs> Makes, <laughs> it's so nice. It's so it's so much fun to record a podcast with intelligent, smart people who are fun to talk to. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. So I have been your host, Bart Bouchard. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hello, people. My name is Peter Bird, and I am the host of the Deep Look Podcast. The idea behind the show is that we talk to our guests and we learn more about them, the subjects, the people, the things that shape their lives, or the things they're interested in, or the things they would possibly want to know more about. Basically, we just like to look a little deeper and see what's there and to learn. If that appeals to you, or you like that idea, or if even if you have a guest that you think we should try and speak to, then come on by and give us a go. We are part of the Stoplight Network.